millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Dope Black Woman podcast, the podcast where we share stories of black excellence as part of our safe digital sisterhood. I'm Leanne Levos. I'm Rashan. You can call me Shan. I'm Livs. This week, we're discussing mental health in black girls with Ebenezer Iyere. So in light of Mental Health Awareness Week, we have Ebs on the podcast this week. Now, Ebs is the founder of Milk and Honey. So before we go any further, do you want to kind of explain a bit about what that means? Yes, I can. Hi, ladies. Hi. Hey. So Milk and Honey was founded in 2016 after a young man passed away because I saw a lot of girls doing a lot of the groundwork that is often missed. Milk and Honey is an expressive safe space for young girls. I would say under the age of 20, but sometimes I get young, younger females, sorry, older females, but it's literally for young girls to put themselves first and through her. So putting her first and her is healing, empowerment and resilience. Love that. And we, awesome. we use creativity to kind of strengthen and enable these girls to thrive as well as heal from their experiences. Mm-hmm. whatever the experience may be mm-hmm. so not not labeling our girls is very important to me so i don't say because you've been through x or or this that this is a space for you i literally just say if you've been through something directly or indirectly you can be a part of milk and honey so that's interesting i guess there's a, a really wide spectrum in terms of the type of girls that come to you in terms of the experience so it's not like they've all been through xyz yeah and what, something that we like to ask all of our guests when they come on is what, what would you say makes you a dope black woman? I would say the women that came before me. Mm. Okay. The women awesome. that I had to learn from, whether it be my family, my friends' moms, or, you know, the Condoleezza Rice's, the Rosa Parks of the world that I had to use my own time to educate myself on. But mm. because I know that these women exist, I literally ride the wave of these women and strengthen myself every day. Mm. So even you, you know, the lovely ladies on here, you know, we know that we have a relationship outside of this. Mm-hmm. Coming on here enables me to see myself as a dope black woman and then go back into the community that I work with and show the younger girls that they can equally be the same thing, regardless of where they've come from. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is powerful. Mm-hmm. So how's everyone's week been? Like genuinely been? Because mental health awareness week, so we can have trauma if you need to have trauma. We have to be honest. <laughs> My week's been good. It's been good. It's been filled with a lot of sleep, which is rare. But mm. it's been a good week. And I, I think the sleep is me, you know, sticking with the theme of mental health awareness week, being kind to myself. Mm-hmm. So... That's interesting because that's something I was talking to um, Leanne about either this week or last week. Mm. The idea that you put a lot of pressure on yourself to kind of, what did I say to you, Leanne? I think I said, can you relate to the idea of 
you're not living up to the expectations or the standards of your younger self. So I've been trying to explore sleeping. I haven't really been that successful yet, but we moved. Tomorrow's a new day. <laughs> How's the rest of your week been? Um, yeah, same as uh, you, interestingly, Shan. I know we had that discussion earlier this week, and it's funny because I feel like I was just saying to the girls before we started the call that sleep has been evading me and it's literally driving me crazy. And um, I'm kind of trying to get to the bottom of why that's the case, because on surface, there's no real reason reason for it, but there obviously is a reason for it. So yeah, I'm kind of wading through that at the moment and just, uh, yeah, trying to figure that out. Yeah. It's not been bad, but it's just been a little bit frustrating. Yeah, I can relate to you on that because I remember I messaged you at like four in the morning. Yeah, and we were <laughs> both out. <laughs> you were coming in like 10 minutes. And I was like, what is she doing away? <laughs> no, that's actually crazy. Yeah, man, it's standard for me to be up at somewhere between the hours of two and five. It's actually been mad. Yeah. And what about you, Libs? Um, I think this week for me hasn't been too bad mental health wise. I mean, like I'd be lying if I said that I've adjusted in terms of lockdown and quarantine and that whole palaver I'm not like people keep saying oh you know it's gonna have to be the new normal for a while new normal but for me it's like it's still a struggle some days it's still Mm -hmm. a struggle not being able to just follow any kind of real routine which is what I usually rely on for my mental health um not being able to see people the way you normally would so like yeah that has definitely been kind of like an ongoing thing um but I think mental health awareness week is like a good opportunity to kind of just highlight um the way this whole time period is impacting our mental health so I think it's yeah. a huge it's a huge issue have you spoken um, to anyone about it like I mean I've just been speaking honestly definitely with like my friends my partner with my parents yeah. just about how it makes me feel mm-hmm. um and like you know going into um how we started this podcast all that trauma you know I think I don't think enough people take into consideration this isn't my own personal experience but I'm just thinking of other people you know imagine you turn on the news and every day it's about people dying it's about um you know people falling ill and it's about people losing their jobs and like Mm -hmm. there's nothing positive going on and like you know that can create PTSD in people um there's so many problems I think they've come out of this whole lockdown that people don't realize at face value I think yeah no I definitely agree with you because even I was talking to one of my friends this week so one of my friends messaged me and she was like um hi guys can we have a, like a quiz not a quiz night can we have a catch up on the phone um and everyone like, it's like a group chat of us from college but we're not all like close as a group but we just meet up like once a year or once every two years we have the chat there and we all somehow was available and was like yeah 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 let's talk tomorrow and we planned it and actually speaking on that on speaking to her was that like, a bigger um need than in discussion mm, what i'm trying to say like speaking to her had more of a need than we all realised joining that call because mm. she was really vulnerable about the like her suicidal thoughts. Like she was saying that she's got like a rope in her house. She was be- she was being quite vivid um, in her experience, and I think for some people on the call, it was actually quite triggering because I could see that yeah. like, their screens would then would, would then turn off, been muted for ages, and things like that. But I think it was really important for her to even bring that discussion to the forefront because we was then able to be like more supportive towards her. So now, with, rather than our group chat being more dormant. It's a lot more active with us all being like messaging her every single day 
or like sending her stuff or like I love Ludo shout out anyone that plays Ludo because it's the best game ever but like <laughs> I keep games every day because it's just like let me give her something to keep her mind off of it but um, going back to you Ebs and the work with Milk and Honey it's like how did that come about when did it start and like what inspired you so as I mentioned it started in 2016 um, because I work in the area of violence and criminal justice where young people are concerned and it is a very male dominated the way you know the media portray it the way the sector looks at it is, that is very male heavy but underneath the surface of all these males there's a lot of women mm. and whether they're young women whether they're mums whether they're grandmas whether they're girlfriends or, or not girlfriends they're still young girls who have grown up in these communities around these males who I felt like wasn't getting the support and they only got the support if they was deemed as victims. And I, you know, I commend anyone that does CSE work, which is child sexual exploitation and domestic violence work. Those, the people that do it are amazing, but there was a cohort of young people who weren't ready or just didn't meet that need. And their experiences weren't kind of heard. So I read a book, which is a poetry book called Milk and Honey. And I was very triggered by that book because I was like, wow, you know, why is she writing about me and (laughs) (laughs) And my friend? And you know what? Why is she writing about my mom? You know, I I don't understand who gave you that power. Mm. She don't know me. Exactly. (laughs) But I started to realize that it was my own internal processes that connected with that book. Mm -hmm. So I gave it to a young girl. Um... And she read it when she was young at the time, she's a lot older now. And she read it and she was like, oh my gosh, you know, something needs to be done. We need to do something. Ebby, you need to do something. Was it a black author? No, she is Asian. Is it Ruby Carr? Yes. Oh, Oh, I love her work. Oh, I want to read it now. Yes. I think Um, I might have a copy, you know. You know what? I I will post you a personal copy. Thank you. I will, after this, I will post you a personal copy. Me, Rashad, nobody else, thanks. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I read it and slowly, with the help of Winston, I kind of cultivated this safe space mm-hmm. for young girls using creativity and expression. And the girls that I tend to get are Black girls. And mm-hmm. not just Black girls, but the Black girls that are deemed as angry, aggressive, hard to reach, you name it, all these labels that, you know, we know that in the workplace are even still used. You're using this to describe school children as young mm-hmm. as primary school. And so I started to more look at how the system works with our girls mm-hmm. and what I can do to kind of understand myself, the girls, and support them in the community whilst using creativity. And I guess Milk and Honey was created yeah. Oh, so you kind of mentioned that a lot of girls that gravitated towards you happened to be black. Was that an intentional thing? So if, if that didn't happen, do you think you would have made that a priority for you? I would say a bit of yes and no. Why mm-hmm. I say no first is because that would that would have been harder for me to say at the time mm-hmm. because I still had a lot of work to do on myself. Mm-hmm. And I think when working with young women and women in general, we need to kind of look internally at ourselves. So I needed to understand my own black girlhood for what it was and my experiences and my trauma 
before yeah. I started working with them. Yeah. And at first, I'll be honest, I didn't want to work with them. I didn't want to work with girls in general, let alone be comfortable and confident saying I explicitly want to work with black girls. And that is still a journey that I'm still on because I always have one white girl, for example. But at the moment, um, if you look at like, my social media and the way that I'm talking about the work that I do, I am explicitly that person in the room that's like, okay, so what about the black girls? Because they are very unheard and mm. very unhealed in mm. our community. The more that we continue to, you know, ignore them, not, not necessarily ignored, let me take that back. The more we continue to not understand them for what their experiences are to them, the more we're going to end up with a lot more, and I put this in speech marks, angry black women in the workplace because mm. the young girls wouldn't have had a space to process their own experiences as well yeah. as society doesn't understand what it even feels like to be a young black girl from Brixton, let alone a young black girl from, I don't know, Harrow somewhere. Mm. So everybody's experiences being a young black girl is very different and how they navigate systems. You know, we're the only race and gender. I can never find any resources in the UK to work with. So a lot of my learning and a lot of my kind of vim to want to talk about black girls comes from the work of ladies in America that are really comfortable and confident being unapologetically black and creating spaces for these girls. So when I started looking at their work, I said, you know what? I'm going to do the same thing because yeah. they need they need the spaces and they need the work. And I tell you, th- these girls, I, I have to, you know, I have to actually bring up the girls I work with because they are the strongest young females that I know to date. They've taught me so much about myself and about how much they actually need the safe spaces to be black girls, you yeah. know, to be black girls, to be angry, to be happy, to cultivate and express their emotions in the way that they want to and not the way that somebody else is telling them to. And why do you think there's such a big, like, neglection towards black women or black young girls? Because you spoke, you said a minute ago that there's not a lot of um, research out there when you've been trying to look for yourself. So why do you think there's such a big gap? Oh, this is a really interesting question. Um, one of the, the answers is, Okay, I'm going to start with it. Oh, Lord, Lord. <laughs> it is easier to sexualize black men. It is easier to sexualize black boys. Um, so that is why we have a lot of research on black men and black boys, because as we know, the people that are even doing the research is not us. Yeah. And so with the sexualization of black men and black boys, it is easier to engage with them positively or negatively. But in terms of black girlhood and being a black woman, I would say we we don't want anyone writing about us. So we're not going to allow anyone to write about us. And when we do write about ourselves, I feel like everybody writes about black womanhood, what it means to be a black woman in the UK, whereas not everybody even knows what it felt like to be a black girl apart from like slicking your hair and stuff. but you know like the underlying like what was the it's like in schools we talk a lot about school exclusions for boys but no one talks about the fact that our girls are managed moved but I work in the system so I know that black girls are equally excluded and managed moved like their male counterparts but we don't talk about it because 
the black girl is going to tell you about yourself a lot more times and that's going to make it harder for people to want to engage with her. And it's also, we also have to look at it. Like I mentioned, a lot of us have not healed. I'm still on my healing journey. So there are some things that trigger me along the way. But you can't, you can't go and work with someone that's not your child that looks like you if you haven't processed what you're processing. Because if she gives you attitude, are you not going to want to fling it back? You're not going mm-hmm. to be in a process where you understand that I know where your attitude is coming from. You're always going to be reactive. And what I learned on my journey is if when working with especially girls that, you know, they look like me, I look like them, we have to both be on a page of respect and understanding that we're riding this journey together. And where you are, where you are coming from, I've been there, maybe not in the same way, but I've been there. And when you're where you're trying to get to, black girl, do you know what? I'm on that bus on the way there as well. Do you know what? No, I'm in the GLA Mercedes on the way there too. (laughs) (laughs) I was just about to ask you actually, because one of the things that I think is interesting is that so many times, whether you're talking about black women or black men, when you hear people tell their testimonials or their stories, they're telling it in like retrospectively, they're telling it in hindsight, right? They've already been through the process. And so for you, because as you expressed, you're going through it almost alongside the the girls that you're working with, I think sometimes that's even more powerful because it resonates with them that you're going through the same thing that they are in many ways. And so I guess the question uh, that I have is kind of twofold is how do you manage that, you know, not being or being triggered by some of the things that they're going through because it's something that you're going through and how do you kind of overcome the obstacle of guiding them through the process and if someone says to you, well, how do you know you're going through the same thing as me? What what makes it okay for me to to listen to what you're saying? Like, how do you navigate those kind of like obstacles where people push back, where the girls push back? Because I, I assume that's part of what happens sometimes. Yeah, it does happen. But I think it's kind of the relationship that you build with them at the start. See, I'm human. I'm not a robot. They know. And yeah. so they know that I also have, the same space that I'm creating for them, I also have that space be it in my clinical supervision and then in my reflective practice because I get all these things like three times a week sometimes, depending on who I'm working with. Mm. So they will even say to me, oh, Ebby, you need to go and you need to go and see, <laughs> go, go and see your supervisor, go and see, you know, or they will say, well, you need to talk to Jenny. You need to talk to your team. And them knowing that I've got a support system supports them to feel supported by me and a lot of their experiences they know that I've overcome because I've left secondary school and they know that I've overcome some of maybe how they they navigate in the community based on the things that they see me doing so for example them being able to listen to this podcast they know that wow Ebby looks like me she's gone through some of the same things but look at where she is now and the main thing is that I don't lead with my own experience I respect people that work from that perspective but I think that the reason why I don't is because my experience is mine and everybody else has their individual um, relationship with their experience I am a big believer of peer support and these girls and creating a sisterhood where the girls sit in a circle together and feel comfortable to talk about the things that they're going through and my job in that time is to hold the room so that the boundaries are in place but allowing the girls to kind of 
advise each other or even challenge each other based on the things that they may describe that they're going through is very, very important because I'm not always going to be there. And so yeah. enabling girls to build a sisterhood with themselves, because we have this narrative where you're in secondary school where, you know, you're not supposed to like each other as girls. We're supposed to be in competition. And I am trying to break that narrative by allowing girls to support each other, especially black girls. Why do we develop a sisterhood when we're women, but we forget the fact that we was against each other when we was in school? It's very wrong. And with the way that these girls are growing, we need to do things the other way around. We need to enable the sisterhood be strengthened from now rather than later mm. on, because then they are the generation of leading this movement. They are going to be the generation of black girls who develop into women that as much as these stigmas will be there, we would have been through these things. And so creating these spaces for them, it will be easier for them to navigate. I'm not saying they still won't have the barriers that a lot of us may have had, but because they know that, oh, you know, dope black women were able to do that podcast, I can do that podcast. <laughs> yeah. And, and that is the reality. Whereas when I was growing up, you know, shout out Angelica Bell, but she was the only person that looked like me mm. on TV. Mm. And it was difficult. So a lot of these girls, for me, it's important for our spaces to not just highlight black women, but black girls. Because before you are a black woman, you are a black girl and your experience as a black girl, whether you grew up here in the UK or not, sometimes is more missed than your experience as a black woman. Whereas if we started writing our stories from young and there was more research and more evidence about what it felt like to be a black girl, I feel like as black women, we'd be a lot stronger and a lot safer in the world. It's interesting because I think there's been an erasure, as you just pointed out, there's been an erasure of, of black girls and their mm-hmm. childhood, right? And it's almost like, as soon as you bec- as soon as you're identified as a black girl, you're also identified as a woman, yes. you know, and that's sexually, that's physically, that's in terms of how you process your emotions. Mm-hmm. So when you're taking it back and just allowing the woman that the girls that you're working with to just be girls, how do you? Are there particular tools that you use? Does it does it go beyond the peer support? Because that's a very powerful thing. But are there actually like uh, mechanisms or or uh, kind of tools that you ask them to engage with or practices? Because, I mean, I think that would be useful for women as well, because as Black women, we also have that difficulty because we didn't, we weren't allowed to have that as children. Yeah, so I agree. So, you know, that that research that you're talking about, again, it comes out of America, that Black girls, mm-hmm. you know, the erasure of Black girlhood is prolific. And when I read that report, I was like, hold on, this is the same thing here. The adultification of black girls here, to me, because I can directly see it, is just as it is just as detrimental as they may have over there, but just in a different kind of way. So, like you said, Leanna, our girls are sexualized. They're told that you know you have to be in the kitchen. You're 14. You have to be in the kitchen with your mom. You have to look after your siblings. You have to do all of these different things. So, in terms of resources and practices, which is that is the reason why I use creative expression. So allowing the girls to tap into the things that mean the most to them, mm. be it music. A lot of the girls love music. So I will find a way for them to engage with the creative industry. In terms of holistic practicing, I get the girls to do a lot of journaling and writing of their experiences mm. because that's also them 
writing their stories and they don't, you know, they may not think about it like that right now. Um, a lot of processing of loss is important with the girls that I work with. So a lot of processing of grief and experiences, and that can be done through journaling, can be done through healing circles, which is where we use any kind of poetry or even a statement and we sit in a circle together and the girls literally have to kind of just project their voices and scream out how they may feel um, in that circle. And so imagine sitting in a circle with your peers, with your eyes closed, listening to something that touches you internally and being able to release it out. Yeah. So that that helps. Um, other exercises, something as simple as getting the girls to hold their knees when they're you know, talking about themselves. It enables them to feel like they've got them. And my whole thing is, we need to strengthen our girls to feel like they've got themselves before they've got everybody else because mm-hmm. that's where the adultification comes where we're saying to girls, well, to be a strong woman, you have to look after everybody. Mm-hmm. But we miss out the part where it's like you have to look after you. And so I just equip them with material that they can use to strengthen themselves. Obviously, um, Rupi's book, something I am very interested in doing with a lot more black girls is kind of talking to them about the women that like I said the women that came before them and so getting a lot more black women to talk to young black girls about their experiences is something that hopefully I will be developing as well as using the research that I do in America to kind of shape that discussion um Leanne around what resources can we use because as much as we can take learning from everywhere else we need to develop our own learning Definitely. for our sectors, whether it is the business sector, the social care sector, the sports sector, the health sector. I want to see Black girls champions and I want to see how the way in which the practices that they need are embedded right from the onset, especially in our education system. Because I say this all the time, you know, everybody cares about what Black girls look like outside but nobody cares about how she feels internally. Mm. Well, that's got to start. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about um, adultification, because I think we think about that a lot in relation to young black men. Um, You know, you look at what's happening in America and young black boys being shot, and it's always an excuse of, oh, you know, it was dangerous, we had a weapon, da-da-da-da. And sometimes, you know, you see them and they're like, 15, 40, like they're kids, like they're just literally kids. And I think no one talks about how the same thing happens to young women and happens here. And, Mm -hmm. you know, because I was um, thinking the other day about my partner's little sister. She's 15 and she actually acts like a 15-year-old and I love it. Like she doesn't really wear makeup. She doesn't really, she's not Mm. interested in boys. Like she's interested in baking and hanging out with her friends and drawing and I'm just like I love that and I just tell her like honestly be a kid as long as you can like do not rush becoming an adult yeah do not rush you know trying to be what you think everyone thinks you should be like enjoy your innocence enjoy your youth because once you become an adult there's no going back (laughs) trust I would know (laughs) yeah I would know but you know what Anyone that knows me knows I embrace my 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 little girl. She mm. is there and I will bring her out when and where I need to because it is important. And what you said there lives about her being, you wanted her to, you know, just telling her, be you, stay as young as you want. 
it is important that we give our girls these messages because everything around them is telling them that they need to be grown. Mm-hmm. And mm. it's telling them that they need to look grown, but it misses out the part where you need to feel grown. And so what you get is an imbalance where girls look older and may display older attitude, but internally, you're still dealing with a 15-year-old, a 13-year-old, mm. or that sassy nine-year-old that, you know, has just learned to read and she thinks she knows everything as she's telling you, but, but, because, because. Teachers and people in society may think, oh, she's rude. She's, you know, she's too young. No, she's finding herself. And so I do this thing with girls that they would say, oh, my teacher said I was angry. You know, my mom thinks I'm angry. And I say, do you know what? I used to be deemed as angry a lot. In fact, I was called by my teacher, oh, you're just a bad girl that doesn't cry. And I said, what's that? Mm. A bad girl that doesn't cry. Do you know what? Okay, cool. I'm going to wear that label. And so I went through my school education wearing that label and no one knew internally she's going through it. Now, I'm tall as well, so that added to it. Whereas, like, you're tall, you don't cry, and you're supposedly always angry. So I internalized that. And what I do with the girls that I work with and I want to do for all girls is teach them about eloquent rage. Mm. Because anger is not the only emotion that we have. And just because somebody does not understand what you're displaying to them, it doesn't mean that you need to internalize that label. Sometimes you could just be eloquently rageful and you move on. So there's some girls who will tell their teacher, no, I'm not angry. I'm eloquently rageful. <laughs> <laughs> have you been reading them, Brittany Cooper, Abby? <laughs> yes. yes. I've got teachers like, so, Ebby, she said she's eloquently rageful. And you know what? I will break it down for a teacher if I have to, because you may think that she's angry, aggressive, but no, inside she is just a little girl. And like I said, these labels then influence their mental health. And then when young black girls' mental health is influenced, nobody knows how to work around that mental health because what she's displaying is different from maybe what this is the Dope Black Women podcast. They, they, they may not be similar at the same time, but the way somebody else is going to understand them due to upbringing and culture and the labels that have been applied is different. If we continue to tell our black girls, oh, you're a strong black girl, you're going to be a strong black woman, they're not going to feel comfortable expressing mm. the weakness that they may have. And furthermore, the vulnerabilities that they possess only make them stronger in the long run. Mm. And we know that because we're Mm. women. But right now, they don't know that. And that is why Milk and Honey exists because it's like, if you are going to cry, honey, I have tissue for you, let's cry. (laughs) Let's cry together. (laughs) Let's cry and then after, we eat. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's something that grown women don't know either. And I think, as you said, it's probably impacted by the fact that we're taught to be grown from so early. I mean, even for me, I can say that processing my emotions and being vulnerable is something that's really difficult. And it's something that takes practice, right? So if it's not something that you're practicing from when you're young, when you get to an adult and you have to be everything to everyone, you have to be a boss in your career, Mm. you have to be everybody's best friend, you have to be the listener, you have to take care of the home. It's exhausting. And then ultimately that does impact mental health, you know, and and you see it um, across I think because we're having more discussions around mental health in the black female community, I think it's 
it's getting better. Still, this the wider society doesn't really understand the damage that's being done from so early on. Definitely, I would agree to you. And it, for me, it makes me think about why, like, why don't people understand? But then it goes back to what I said. How can they understand something that they don't know? Mm-hmm. And which is why, as much as I do this work and I love championing the work, my one of my next steps is to start writing about this work and conducting more research in this kind of area. So I was meant to go to America in two months, but Miss Rona said no. And so <laughs> Miss Rona said, hold up. She said, hold Unpack up. Pack your bag, honey. Literally. <laughs> To be honest, I even packed, unpacked from my holiday in December, let alone packing from Puerto <laughs> Rico. Um, so there to do a lot of research because there are some amazing, amazing women. Like there's an organization called Justice for Black Girls, for example. Look at just how unapologetic that title is. First, mm. um, and I liaise with this amazing girl called Brie Baxter, and she's even younger than me but she's a teacher teaching social justice in America. And I tapped into one of her classes and I'm like, you have 14 year olds talking about the school to prison pipeline. Wow. So she is teaching them about their experiences in a way that they understand. And I think it's important when I, when I go there to not only use that as a way to kind of support milk and honey, but champion the voice of girls in the UK. Because our girls, I don't feel like our girls are championed enough. We now have spaces for black women, but black girls, I sometimes have to be that person in the room where it's like, what about our girls? And the reason why I'm comfortable doing that is because my work started working with boys. And I had to check myself and say to myself, if you're going to work with them, you need to work with the people who actually give you the information about where the boys are. And so what, has happened now that I work with both genders there's a balance where a young boy will say to me oh you need to work with that girl she needs milk and honey and a girl will say do you know what you need to work with that boy that boy needs you know the support of juvenis and it it enables community support and that's I guess what's missing for our young people especially our black young kids that ability in the community to say okay she knows or he knows about mental health where do I go to and that is why the spaces for specifically Black girls are just as important. Mm. One of the first questions Roshan asked at the top of this program is just like, um, well, at the top of this podcast, sorry, is, you know, how are you all feeling? Like, how are you all doing? And I think um, what I'm kind of realising recently, um, and definitely something I didn't know in childhood and in my teenage years, is um, the difference between knowing yourself intellectually and knowing yourself emotionally. That touches on what you just said, this idea that, you know, these girls aren't stupid. They're aware of what they've been through. They're aware of their environments, whether that's, um, you know, abuse or uh, violence or bullying. They're aware that these things happen and that they're, you know, they're not anything a young person should go through, but they kind of, I feel like you'll learn to just go, oh, well, that's life. It's just how it is. It's just how it is where I am. It's just how it is in my world. And you're not taught, okay, but how, what is the emotional impact of that? Mm. And not just now, but five years time, 10 years time, 15 years time. Um, so like, I think, I used to think, ah, oh, 
I'm cool with my mental health. Like I'm all good because I know why I have these problems and I know where these problems stem from. And I'm so smart. Like I'm so intellectual. Like I'm I'm so self-aware, but I didn't actually take time to step back and learn the emotional side of myself. Yeah, no, I agree. And that takes a lot more work. This is it. And that is why I feel like we need to start doing it with our girls. Right from school age. Because I unapologetically want to work with them these black our black girls because for me it is important that they don't go through what we went through in our adult life and start thinking how do we manage emotions how do we speak about this stigma of mental health that was laid upon us without feeling stigmatized and so you can see now young people are very much very comfortable talking about their experiences, be it of mental health or violence, they have the language. Whereas when I was growing up, there wasn't a language that I even understood. Mm. And I still believe a lot of the language that we use to describe things needs to be more accessible for young people um, to understand what what they are like going through. And I talk a lot about digestible language, especially for the Black community, where we need to start using language to describe mental health that doesn't layer the stigma, but in fact eradicates the stigma Mm -hmm. and being able to say to your friend, how do you feel rather than why do you feel like that? Mm -hmm. Are you okay today rather than get over it? You know, it's those little things that make a difference. And, you know, I know there's a lot of moms that listen to this, aunties, your daughter coming in from school, ask her how she is. Ask her how she is. Not Don't ask her about what Agreed. trouble did she cause. Mm. Ask her how she is because you don't know the experience of that she may have had traveling to school, that she may have taken in in school and even on the way back. I say this a lot. A lot of our girls, without people knowing a lot of young black girls, especially in London right now, are mobilizing in their communities and we don't even know, which means that they're taking care of other young people without even healing their from mm. their experiences. They are playing mums in the community and I know what this feels like because at 15, that was me. I've got girls who have been counselling for other people right now in their communities and they're unheard. And that goes back to the adultification, but it also goes back to the If no one's going to listen to me, I want to listen to someone else. And those are the roles that as women, we tend to, we tend to adopt the nurturing role and being there for people. And as great as it is, and I champion it, what I do also see is that some of our girls, because of what's going on in the world, whether it be youth violence, mental health, COVID-19, are going to go into professions that they become nurturers but they wouldn't have processed and have anyone ask them what happened to them, how do they feel, and then they go into these systems and they get triggered. I was just going to pick up on, you know, you said that an important aspect is about um, making the vocabulary so that it's, like, digestible for young people. Because I remember, like, for me, you know, it's only uh, maybe after, like, I was 17, maybe for, like, from then onwards that, you know, I kind of understood that something like PTSD, for example, mm-hmm. isn't just exclusive to soldiers in Iraq. Like, yeah. do you know what or I mean? Or a car like, crash. Yeah, like it can be all different types of ways. So, you know, I guess there isn't much, well, there is, there is good, but also you can't just send a child to the GP and get a PTSD diagnosis 
if they don't know what that means for them, if they don't know what that means for their lives. So I guess what would be your advice to, you know, to talk for, for any of us who have um, younger siblings or cousins or nieces or whatever, that how do you talk about mental health in a way that doesn't seem scary? Because I guess some people are worried about labeling. Some people are worried about bringing up words like anxiety, depression too early. Um, what, what, what's kind of your advice on that? As labeled this advice is going to sound, a good starting point for anyone of any age is that film Inside Out. The reason why I say that is it enables you to go right back to your childhood and look at emotion, emotions and senses. And that's what we need to start talking about. We need to start talking about our emotions because happy and sad is not the only emotion. Anger and fear are not the only emotions. You know, there's so many different kinds of feelings that you can have to a different situation and it can impact you on so many different levels that we need to widen the language as to feeling comfortable to say to someone, do you know what, I feel down today and no one question, why do you feel down? What's the problem? You just understand it for what it is. But I think going back to what you said, Liv, about the post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, when I was growing up, I only thought that was for people, like you said, in Iraq who had gone through war, as well as car crashes. So mm-hmm. I, I had to grow up to learn that you can have post-traumatic stress even just by witnessing or hearing something that may not have also happened to you. And it affects us. It may affect us internally, but it also affects our bodies, for example. So being able to kind of link physical health and mental health helps those conversations because you can enable a young person to understand the interlink between the two but feeling comfortable as well to say you know what I've, I've felt like that once before or I feel like that like in this time if anyone is not being honest with themselves and the people around them about how they feel I worry about what's going to happen after and you know I'm very worried about what will happen to a lot of black girls um, after we come out of lockdown because a lot of them probably have spent their time being mini adults and not having that safe space to actually go to and talk. Like I'm still doing online Zoom, but it's, it's not the same. Mm. It is not the same of having that peer support, even just that hug, whether it's a hug from me or a hug from their peers. You know, I'm thinking about one of my young girls that comes into my session and she always comes in with her face very push up. And just the ability to say to her, can you smile, please? And she loves it and she'll start smiling. Little things, little interactions. I think about how they benefited our girls. And I think about after how much young girls I'm going to meet that are going to tell me things about what they was going through now. And I just wish there was a way that there was already things in place that understood black girls so that after we would be able to work with them and understand it more. I just think now is a time for like mum, sisters, everyone to work with our girls. However, and kind of talk to them about your experiences of like growing up. This is this is a time, you know, I I just I just worry about after. I really do. Mm. I was gonna say, has anyone seen um Nadine Harris's TED talk? No. Oh my gosh. Y'all need to watch it. I mean, the way it's triggering is so good. She's a black female psychologist from America. I think Atlanta is so good. 
basically she talks about how childhood trauma impacts adulthood and also our yeah. physical health and how She's amazing yeah and how basically you know if you experience trauma at young age so people that experience trauma at young age are more likely to have heart attacks are more likely oh, to have yeah, diabetes so she, mm-hmm. are more likely to have um, a whole bunch of health issues because you know, as you said, there is a physical impact on your mental health. Your body is used to being on high alert. And it's kind of this whole bear theory. So basically, like, you know, if we're to go back millions and millions of years and like the idea of being human, if you were to see a bear in the wild, it's like that fight, fight or flight activity, like mm-hmm. that your brain has in you of how you would deal with situations. If that part of your brain is put on high alert, throughout your childhood because of violence or trauma, whatever it might be the experience, that will then affect the way you move through the world and also just your physical health in general. You're more likely to die earlier. Like there's all kinds of stuff. But it's really, really interesting. Um yes. we will link, I know. link it in the podcast description. I know that study very well. It, yeah. It's called diverse childhood experiences. And as great as that work is, I'm always that person that will be like, what is it culturally competent though now that's probably different different conversation for a different podcast but what i mean about that study being culturally competent is does it encompass the experiences of you know of black people because it doesn't Mm -hmm. that study does not take into consideration if you've experienced racism at a young age it doesn't take into consideration if you have you know witnessed or seen domestic violence so there's aspects of it that I definitely do agree with. And Nadine is absolutely amazing. She's, again, one of the women in America that I have learned a lot from. But when you then relate it to our community, sometimes I feel like these things do not ground our experiences. They don't actually encompass or take into consideration our direct experiences. So, for example, I worked with a young girl who... At age 16, the boy that so the boy that she was pregnant for at the time was killed. And he was killed. And I, I didn't know where to go to find her any kind of bereavement support that would be culturally competent, that wouldn't judge her, that would understand her experience as a young black girl. This is the Dope Black Women Podcast. Do you think, I mean, like, you've mentioned America a few times, and I think, like, you know, generally speaking, there is more, um, there's more talk around the Black experience in America, Mm -hmm. like, it's more openly discussed. The fact that there isn't that Black, specifically Black British young girl narrative, what impact do you think that has? The fact that we kind of sometimes have to turn to the American experience because even even something as simple as like me in my 20s you know as a young black woman the closest thing that I feel like oh that's me is insecure but that's mm. an American tv show I don't know a British one that touches it the same way I think the impact is very very detrimental because we're, we're reinventing the cycle of how I grew up how you grew up how some of these girls have grown up how a lot of the women that came before us grew up where we're not seeing across the board people that look at Phil and can deliver our experiences, be it on screen or even in the dentist. You know, there's that discourse where it's like, you want to see it on screen, but I also want to go into my dentist and feel the same kind of way that I felt when I'm watching someone on TV. 
or I want to see my therapist and I want to make sure that my therapist looks like me. And so the detrimental effect, effect in that case is sometimes I feel like it, it bounces back to the adultification where it's like we're rushing, we're rushing girlhood and it's, we're rushing girlhood to get to a point where womanhood can be spoken about confidently and the race aspect of being a black woman can be confidently championed. Whereas because we don't have these images around girlhood, it means that the black girls that should be being girls want to rush and become young women. And then they want to rush and become women because no one has sat down with them or understood what it means to be a black girl in the UK or be it in London or in in Birmingham because all of us are going to have different kind of experience, be it where you grew up, whether you grew up in, I don't know, in the herd or you didn't. Whatever your experience is, it hasn't been documented as a black girl and we're always having to turn to, like you said, the states to kind of, I wouldn't say validate our experiences, but to like, I don't know the word I mean, to sometimes use. it feels like that. Yeah, sometimes I feel you know, sometimes, yeah, right sometimes it does. Sometimes it does feel like that. I would say in terms of the work that I do, sometimes it feels like, okay, you know, this is validating because it's been done here and I understand that there's a high number of, you know, these girls here who are going through the same thing here. So I guess sometimes yeah, it does seem, it is validating to know that your experience is over there, but what about it being here? And that's, I guess that's where the twofold struggle is. Yeah, I think there is like uh, something that we miss and I'm really big on contextualized analysis of situations. And I feel like it's great to know that, as you said, that there are other people across the diaspora that are going through the same experiences. But I think it's equally as important to acknowledge the differences because it's in the differences that you learn how to move forward. Mm -hmm. And so, as you said, solutions that you found in the States, while they might be better than what we have now, it doesn't mean that they are the best approach or the best method for young black girls here. And I think the more that through the work that you're doing and other women are doing to identify or to provide, I think one of the things about British black culture in general, and we talk about this with boys a lot, but not with girls, is the lack of identity that they feel. A lot of young black boys say they don't feel like they, they don't feel British and they don't know what it is to be black and British. And so they adopt cultures from, you know, their backgrounds or their communities without knowing what those cultures really are. Yeah. And so I, I feel like we don't talk about that with women, but with girls, but it must be true as well. Like, what does it mean to be a, a young black British girl growing up in this country um, within the context of how you interact with black boys and their lack of identity, lack of representation that is so much worse than it is in the States, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree with that, I think. No, and, and these are conversations that need to be had and they need to be had with directly with the people that are going through it, which is the black girls that people are so scared to engage. And it sometimes is our own women that may be scared to engage them. Mm. So it, it becomes like, it's that we play a part into them not feeling heard and seen. We sometimes play a part into them even being adult, adultified because when it, it comes to like the role of them maybe for them young black counterparts is easier for them to 
support. If you look at like, I don't know, when there's something around youth violence, for example, you tend not to see young black boys coming to talk about what has happened in their communities. It tends to be young black girls. Mm. And so when something happens, it's the young girls in the community that champion their community, that really hold it together, that solidify that community aspect. But their experiences and their spaces are not, like they don't have them cultivated for them. And so I definitely agree with you that, Leanne, that, you know, in the UK, a lot of them do not, you know, they don't know themselves and want to know themselves, but we're not offering them a space to be able to do that as well as process the things that they're going through. Because if you look at how black girls, the relationship between a black girl and her mom, for example, that is a, that's a huge conversation mm-hmm. that has so many layers. But with the moms, the wonderful moms that I work with, I know that because I built a relationship with them and their daughter, I can sometimes act as that balance where mom will say, oh, you know, she's this. And I'll say, mom, you know, you, was, you know, you've been there once. <laughs> <laughs> little girl was like, oh, you know, my mum, you know, beep, 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 beep. And I'm like, oh, I'm not going to let you talk about your mum like that. But second of all, I'm someone's daughter, so I know what you're going through. But, you know, your mum does love you, right? And she may not understand, but have you tried maybe putting it in a letter? Or let's create some spoken word and let's put on a showcase and we can invite your mum and she can hear that spoken word. And we did do that. And a few mums actually were moved by the things that their daughters were saying based on, I've never actually heard this, but I do know that when my daughter comes to Milk and Honey, she's okay. And so I think in the mm. community, we also need to feel comfortable rebuilding those relationships with young people as well as the people around them. Because it takes a village to raise a child, mm. whether it be a black boy or a black girl, we actually need to lean on each other to do so. And there's something as well around um, children having to call out your parents sometimes. Like, I think this is something I've been speaking about with my friends recently, is like having, and we we touched on it, um, I think two weeks ago, talking about fathers in the forgiveness (laughs) episode. But like having to say to your parents, you know, what you've done, what you did to me or what you said to me as a child, um, it's really difficult. So like the mm. children that are going through it at that time, I feel like so often, especially in the black community, it's like, oh, children should be seen and not heard. Yes. And then yes. that creates yeah. adults with trauma. <laughs> this is it. And then, you know, it then increases their mental health prospect as girls where they feel like they only can talk about things if somebody else deems them a victim. Because I see that in my girls that I work with a lot that they have to... There's something about her being a victim that enables and strengthens everybody to be able to want to work with her. But if she's not identifying as a victim and she does all the calling out, then she gets labelled, which then impacts her mental health when she grows up. And I think that's those are the conversations that we need to have where we need to support our young people, A, to feel confident to call people out, but also we need to remember that the more we do not, the more we project at young females, the more they're only going to internalize it and stray towards the people that are opposite of, like, you know, you're you're projecting that she's one way. Well, she's only going to stray towards those people because you've told her that this is 
this is who she is and this is what she is, rather than understanding where she's coming from, what she might be going through and allowing her to kind of navigate through that. And so I'm seeing a lot more, you know, young black girls with depression, anxiety, even eating disorders. And that's not, I, I'm not an expert on eating disorders at all, but I really want more work to be done on black girls with eating disorders because their bodies are a temple and there are a lot of black girls who are going through it. But I wouldn't know where to go. Well, now I do, but I've had to actually go and, you know, find those people who directly work with black girls or black boys who are going through eating disorders because child and adolescent mental health service may not understand that girl. They're not going to understand that, you know, she might eat jollof rice and rice and peas one day, but on another day, she doesn't want to eat it. They are not going to understand that. They're going to see it as, well, you know, the, the cultural aspect is missing. The experience of her even developing that eating disorder, for example, they're not going to understand. Um, you mentioned a bit about the fact that you work with both boys and girls. And obviously within the context of boys, you deal with the fact that, um, you know, they're in the involvement in knife crime and youth violence. And obviously a, a huge part of that is lost. But I don't think we focus the same way in terms of how girls interpret that loss. And I, I was just mm-hmm. wondering, like, what what are kind of the experiences you've had with young girls dealing with the loss of their their cousins, their, you know, their brothers, or even just in this time now when we know that a lot of women, um, pregnant women or mm. um, black women more specifically are dying more at a faster rate. So yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. And that's why, again, Milk and Honey exists. And I am trying to do everything I can to learn more about grief, loss, bereavement in that area to be able to offer a space and service specifically for young black girls mm. because the way in which they process so let me take the the youth violence for example um we don't talk about the experience of being a black sister or being a black mom or cousin or friend or girlfriend and i have worked with and experienced and have friends that have experienced it and nobody ever asked them what they needed mm. and so what i find with when you know a young black boy dies it is the girls that are putting out the flowers. Mm. It is the girls that are sitting with the mom. It is the girls that the media feel like it's, it, 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 their voices should not be heard, but they are the ones that tend to be spoken to. And what happens is that loss of a friend can trigger many things. And with black girls, their first loss sometimes tends to be their fathers. Mm. And it may not always been, be through death. It may be that dad wasn't around. And so she has had to develop into this resilient young lady who pro- processes loss by being there for everyone. And so with my work, for example, I kind of strip back the being there for everyone in the loss aspect and expressing the losses that they may have gone through. And that is not just through death. But that might be, you know, loss of a friend, loss of a situation. But right now, in terms of Black women dying and how the Black girls will be processing it. Like I said, I I struggle, I I worry because loss and bereavement and grief in our community, especially around our girls and our women, is not something that we can shy away from. But it's also a discussion that is difficult to have because a lot of us were taught that we need to be strong. You know, you need to get over it and deal with it. And so now 
how can we ask the same people who were told that they need to be strong to be vulnerable when they don't know how? Mm. And that is why for me it is important to not um, label these girls, especially when they've been through something, whether it be their first breakup or it be a death or it be, you know, being managed moved from school or excluded. We need to stop telling our girls to, you'll be, you're strong. We need to start allowing them to sit in that emotion and kind of express it in the way that they want to and for us to understand it how we need to. Because we don't, we don't, it's not about what we want to understand. It's about what we need to understand to support them. And however they're communicating, it's important for us to be able to process what they're communicating. And so it's it's difficult, but I've worked with a lot of girls who have experienced grief and loss. And it goes back to what I talk about, about being heard and feeling unheard and unhealed. And having to, it's only when somebody asks you that somebody recognizes, that, hold on, this is a girl that, has lost right from she was two years old. This is a girl that knows, has lost her dad maybe to the prison system or the fact that he wasn't around or to, to any system. And, and or the reverse is losing mums as well because we don't, we kind of sometimes only focus on the absent dad, but I also know absent mums. So girls in care, for example, or, or women who have miscarried, all of these losses that create spaces for our girls and our women to feel comfortable to talk about adds to a greater trauma. And then, like I've been saying, when that trauma is displayed, everybody's like, whoa, she's crazy. No, she's not crazy. She's actually just had enough. She's actually very unheard, very unhealed. And she just needed to express herself in a way that, because you hadn't been listening, but now you're listening. And um, just... Yeah. Just quickly, you know, you're talking about um, kind of about stereotypes of in women to be strong. And then also, I guess it kind of links with men in terms of like not being vulnerable and opening up for like anyone listening. Because I feel like there will be people listening who can relate to that, especially at this time, where a lot of people are dying because of COVID and things like that. If they've mm-hmm. got someone close to them who isn't opening up, who isn't showing emotion when dealing with grief, like what what are some things that we can do to support them through that? Um, so this can work with children, young people, anyone. As far as you've been a child before, this advice can work with anyone. Um, if someone can't talk about grief, stop talking to them about it then. It's as simple as that. Stop talking to them about it and create, create a way that they feel comfortable talking to, talking about it. So again, it could be that you, how could I? You know, you might have lost someone. Writing therapeutic letters are a really good way to kind of express and understand what somebody else or what you're going through. And it's also a good way to let go of things. Mm. Also, you know, creating a way that even though you are grieving and you have lost that, that person doesn't feel too far. So it could be, I don't know, creating like a, a space where you remember them, not not something like, I don't know, like, no, I'm not saying create shrines or anything. <laughs> I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that remembering people is a good way to kind of deal with grief, as well as us as friends or as daughters, as mothers, asking direct questions like, you know, are you grieving? That's not, You're not going to get the answer out of anyone. But using creativity to kind of express that is a good way. And I've learned that being creative 
whether it be with adults, boys and and or girls or young women or men is sometimes the easiest way to get an expression. It might be through music, songwriting. You know, sometimes I write and I, I might like try and sing what I've written and I'm like, Mm-mm, stick to the writing. Stick to the writing. Um, writing is a good way, colouring. But you can't rush anyone's grief process, which is why I struggle sometimes to give advice about how people should handle grief because everybody's is different and grief is not linear. Like, you know, when my best friend died in 2014, I was okay for the first six months. I was walking around like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm okay. It wasn't until like a year later that his death hit me and it hit me in a way that I was like, wow. I, I never expected this. Whereas, but do you, do you not feel like in that scenario at the start that you was maybe suppressing it, and you needed yeah, to and we do that in our community that environment to do it. Yeah, but we do that in our community a lot. The suppression of feelings is something that we was taught how to do, but we weren't taught how to express our feelings. And so, being able to suppress your feelings is a starting point, I guess. But it's something that we are subconsciously taught how to do. We're taught how to just get over things and move on. But we're not taught how to be ready for when it comes back and it hits us, basically. Mm. And it's difficult to say, you should grieve like this or you should manage your grief like this because we're all very different. Mm. And we we have all experienced different things. I guess at the time when my best friend died, I was very desensitized from losing young men in the way that he died. So at Mm. that point, it was like, oh, okay. But it wasn't until I really started to process, like, he's not here anymore. Um, You really need to sit with how you feel. And I pushed back. And sometimes, sometimes like in therapy, I will push back on certain things. But my therapist knows that because I'm training, I know how to push back on certain things. So she will tell me, and she will say things like, you know, this ain't one of your classes, right? This ain't your session. You're actually in therapy. So answer the questions like you're in therapy. Um, and I have to remember and tell myself like, oh yeah, this is a therapy session. I'm not with my teacher. So that goes back to the grief aspect where you can't, we can't expect people who don't know what it feels, know how to be vulnerable, to be vulnerable. You kind of have to meet them at their strength and allow them to come to you. And I find that with girls just by being there just by asking how you are or going round like don't directly ask about the problem go round the problem and then they will disclose what is wrong so sometimes if I've got a girl in a session who's going through something we will all have a discussion about boys or we will all have a discussion about self-esteem we will all have these discussions because the expressions start to come out and with the loss of friends going back to Leanne is yeah, I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of girls who have lost their brothers, like direct actual brothers or, you know, in the community, boys that they've grown up with and how this has impacted them and impacted the way they navigate spaces. But also the way that I always talk, talk to people about if you talk about a black boy like this, how do you think it affects the black girl who for so long has had to champion and then has to save and has had to will grow up to protect black men. And so the way in which black boys are spoken about plays a part into the experience of some of these black girls because they are coming from environments where 
the black men in their lives, whether negative or positive, are their role models. Just, just then, um, you were speaking about therapy, and yeah. earlier on this week, one of my friends um, reached out to me and basically said that she was experiencing low moods, and um, she was like, "It's not, a, it's not a physical thing; it's a mental thing." So I just wanted to speak to you. That was literally what she said. But this isn't someone I've spoken to in this sort of capacity before. So we were talking, and at the time she was at work, and I was saying to her, like, have you tried to um, get through to the EAP programme, the Employee Assistant Programme, which is what most workplaces have? And she was very much like, oh, I I don't really want to do that because I don't want to talk to someone who doesn't know me, or I don't want to have to tell all my business out to a stranger. So, like, what's your experience been like with therapy before you went, was that some of the things that you thought about or uh, what was your attitude towards it like? Um, so, well, I remember getting an educational psychologist when I was in school. So they, they chucked all these things at me when I was in school and it was a white man. I was just like, what is this? <laughs> um, like, and I remember saying to him, like, I'm just going to sit here eat this banana, and I'm going to leave. And I'm going to keep coming here to eat your fruit, and I'm going to keep leaving because you're not going to understand me. I'm not going to understand you. I came for the food, and I dipped. And a 15, 14, 15-year-old me, if there's anyone that knew me at that age, is going to be like, yep, sounds like her to be fair. Um, When I started looking into the reasons why people don't go to therapy, I realized that a lot more people need, the, the, a lot of people that don't access therapy definitely do need therapy, but I understand why they don't. And I had one requirement for my therapist. It had to be a black woman. That is it. Had to be a black woman because I want to be able to talk about my mom and not feel questioned. I, w- I want somebody to understand that relationship dynamic. Mm. I want I want to be able to talk about the fact that my best friend was killed through knife crime or through violence and someone not feel like, like ooh, oh my gosh. No, you know, you're going to understand it. You may not have experienced it as a black person or as a black female, but you're going to understand it. But also because I know that as a black female therapist, there's hoops that you had to jump through to get to even be in this therapist. I know that. I'm going to feel valued because you value your profession. Mm. And that is why for therapy, for me, as much as, as much as possible, people need to understand that people don't access it because A, in our community is seen as a weakness, but it's also not, it's also because we don't see the people that we need to see in those spaces. So what I'm hoping, and, and you know, this generation are going to do it. They are the generation of, the next, give it the next five years, you're going to see a lot more black male and female therapists. They are out there. They are studying. We are, we are training and it's, it's not an easy process. I'm the only black person and the only black female in my class. So, so I'm accessing therapy from a black woman, but being taught about therapy from a white woman. Do you now see where the imbalance kind of come? And I've yeah. spent a lot of time on that course. If you know me, you know I've spent a lot of time calling out, even having to put in our group chat books and resources where they can understand where they also play a part into why Black 
young people or adults may not access therapy. And it's important to be able to have that conversation about therapy, not just in terms of us as a community accessing it, but also in terms of the people who are offering the therapy, the discourse between therapists. There's not enough black therapists. There's not enough black therapists that even work in the area area of loss and bereavement, let alone work in mainstream services like, you know, child and adolescent mental, mental health services or adult services. And so it's important to look at accessing therapy, not just as, like I said, as somebody who's going to therapy, but also the fact that where are the black therapists? And they exist, but we need more. There's not there's not enough. Yeah, and I feel like they don't exist within services that you can access through the yep. state. Like if you want, for me, I had to find a black therapist that I have to pay for. You know what I me mean? Too. And not everybody can pay for a therapist. That's one, I would say that in my personal experience, that's one of the biggest um, obstacles or one of the biggest justifications as to why black people uh, that I know don't go to therapies like, mm-hmm. oh, it's too expensive. You know, when we have a welfare system that is supposed to be accommodating of everybody's mental health. And yep. yeah. And there are mm-hmm. projects, for example, that support and directly work with black boys and mental health. And some do great work, some don't. But there's not one that does it for black girls. Yeah. There's also this thing um, of, you know, we talk a lot about how when it comes to mental health in the black community, we like to keep things, quote unquote, in-house, which is why, you know, probably um, someone like Roshan's friend feels more comfortable talking to Roshan than going Uh, to the workplace. But then at the same time, that whole process creates like secondary trauma almost, because if you're just relying on the people around you to talk about it, those people aren't professionals. Like there's only so much you can do to help a friend out and then mm. you take on their trauma for them. And it just becomes this like endless cycle, which yeah. and sometimes it's like, like if you, if you broke your leg, you wouldn't be like, do you know what? Man's not a doctor yet, but I'll try my best. <laughs> like, <laughs> the same approach needs to be taken with mental health. No, I, you know, I, I, I agree. agree with you. I agree. <laughs> Because I would not be coming to any of you to come and drink my head. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I wouldn't feel comfortable. And, you know, live this, this morning is a prime example. I was like nervous as hell. And, you know, I was like, Liz, I can't, I can't do this. And she <laughs> talked to me in the right kind of way. You didn't kind of say, oh, you know, you'll be fine. Get over it. You, you understood where I was coming from and the reason why I felt the way I felt. And we had a conversation. We laughed about it. However, if this was my leg, like I said, I would not be calling you. <laughs> I would not have been asking you. That's okay. As far as you're okay with that, that's fine. But if um, anyone missed it, um, Ebby was on um, Women's Hour this morning. You can go back and listen to it. She's talking about this same topic, young people and mental health. So go check that out on BBC Sounds because she killed it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> This is the Dope Black Women Podcast. So for someone like my friend, who I kind of gave you a bit of a story about a minute ago, or either of them actually, um, who perhaps should potentially seek therapy or are considering it but don't know where to start, like what would you suggest? I looked in the mirror. And I sat in front of the mirror and I cried and I spoke to myself and I said, 
you can't do this alone. Do you understand? Like you, ooh, you cannot do this alone. Um, so sometimes the first steps is acknowledging that you actually need the support to benefit yourself and the people around you. And if we if we want to use like black women, for example, that and talk about our adultification, well, that's a good step for us to actually use that negative and turn it into a positive and go and speak to someone about the things that we're going through because it's difficult, but we have to talk to ourselves first. I cannot advise anyone to go and seek therapy or counselling if they are not ready and comfortable to do so. It starts with an internal conversation and then followed by a kick up the backside. Mm-hmm. And and literally, not, not a literal kick, but it it is that conversation that you have to have with yourself and then feeling supported, like, Roshan, your friend had you, and she's very lucky to have you. But we all know there's certain people who are also going through things who could not have been able to, like, hold your like hold her in that time. Mm. So it's also about being able to say, I don't want to be anybody's burden, but I need help. I want other people to understand me, but I want to understand myself. Mm. And I always say, even to the young girls that I work with, I do this kind of thing um, and I encourage everyone to do it with a mirror and you kind of have your mirror maybe some post-it notes and on one color post-it note you write all the negative things about yourself and you stick it on that mirror and then one by one you you use a different color and you change those post-it notes from negative to positive and you kind of have that battle with yourself and you but by the time you've done that a few times, you will get to a point where you're saying to yourself, I know what's wrong. I'm ready now to access somebody who's going to understand me that will support me with what's wrong as well. Um, there's the the Batan Network, I know, has a, a range of um, Black therapists and Black counsellors in terms of That's how young I people. Yeah, me equally. In terms of young people, I know there's people on there who specifically work with children and young people um, around different areas, but unfortunately, it's not enough. And so, you know, wait me, I guess. <laughs> Everybody should like look forward to me qualifying. Um, oh, what, what other advice would I give? Don't be scared to actually make that call and take the step. I think fear is another thing that we have in our community that is also an emotion that we talk we don't talk about. But um, when if you're not the person accessing therapy, feel confident enough to hold that person's hand through that journey. If you can't, we can't just say, "Oh, TFL, oh, you need therapy." You can't literally say that to someone because it's detrimental to the impact that it may have on them if they was to access it or not. If you do want to have that conversation about therapy with somebody that you know may need it, make sure you've also done your research as because the impact of therapy, as great as therapy is, those who have had therapy or are in therapy knows that it comes with a whirlwind of emotions after therapy, which is why I can't do therapy online. I cannot, I cannot right now, I can't do therapy online in my own home because this is my safe haven. Mm. I want to be able to go to a therapist, leave my stuff there and leave knowing that I've left it somewhere. So, you know, my advice to people is just feel confident enough 
to have that conversation with yourself before you have it with somebody else. And that, that same advice goes for mothers who have daughters who say things like, oh, she spends too much time on her phone or she's antisocial or she doesn't want to talk to me. Use things like creative things to talk to your daughters because the underlying effect is that at 20, 17, 18, 19 or 20, you don't want to be in a position where you don't know your daughter and you're having to find like a therapist or counsellor at the most crucial time for your daughter Mm -hmm. because she's gone through things. Whereas if we start having these conversations now and kind of making, making therapy Make it therapy fun, but not stigmatized. So even if it's done in a way of a family meeting, you know, just having an environment in your house where this is the hour where everyone gets to say how they feel also prepares people for going into situations around talking about therapy, be it one-to-one or group. Obviously, you mentioned that there's a stigma around um, therapy and that, you know, we have issues in in terms of how we label the idea of going to therapy or, you know, if you go to therapy, you must be crazy, you must have issues. What are some of the ways that you try to change, particularly, I guess, parents' minds in terms of saying, look, maybe we should be allowing um, Ebs to go to therapy or maybe we should be allowing Lives to go to therapy? What what kind of, how do you create that attitude shift just on an I mean, forgetting on a community-wide level, but just on a personal level, like on an interpersonal situation. I guess by being human about it, I guess that's where I am more empathetic to the young person, be it the young, like the young girl, for example. But I'm also empathetic to the adult who may not understand the young person but also may not even understand what the therapeutic world has to offer and what it looks like. And so Mm -hmm. I kind of have the conversation with parents by explaining that I am the bridge between that service that they don't want to access and that young person. And it's kind of my job then to use language that is digestible, that is being, you know, communicated or even feeling confident to go with them. I think parents are more receptive. It's all about the relationship that you have. And in the work that I do, the relationship is key. Nothing else matters if I don't have a relationship with the young person or their family member. And that that could even mean just by being able to text mom, like, hi, how are you? Now I've got a lot of girls that come to my sessions and I know they're going to be listening. They will come to my session. Session finished at five. They don't get home till seven. And mum will call me and be like, you know, she came home late. The next thing I'll say is, is she back yet? Okay, put the phone on loudspeaker. Let's all have a conversation about it. You know, I'm not going to talk to her about the fact that she came home late behind mum's back. I'm going to allow that young female to know that right now, mum is upset with you. We need to have a conversation about it. We're building an environment where we can have these conversations. And maybe the bus was late. Maybe that maybe there was something that happened, but because there wasn't communication and that is, that is the word. It's all about how I communicate or we communicate things that enables people to feel comfortable to want to access the things that they need and should access. But this is also something for the people that work in the system where young black people are not accessing. It's also your responsibility to address that within your system. The uncomfortable within mine being able to say, what about young black girls? Or what about the access? Or what about this? Or what about that? And I think everybody 
needs to develop that language within the systems that they work in to be able to offer a space for these conversations to be had. And then it might increase access because there's no point in me doing all this work to encourage a young black girl to access therapy or, and then she gets there and the receptionist is rude to her. Mm. There's, there's, there's no point because that causes an imbalance in the experience. So it's not just about the therapy or the part before, it's all of those things in the middle and all of the like the conversations and the um, engagement in the middle that also supports the access and how someone may, may feel confident to utilise it. Well, yeah, so um, thank you for coming on the podcast today. I feel like it's been really mm-hmm. informative for myself and I'm sure for a lot of people listening. So going back to kind of what we spoke about at the start about Milk and Honey, so for anyone who wants to find out or wants to work with you in the future or get you on their podcast, like how can they go about doing that? So our Instagram and Twitter is at Milk Honey Bees. Um, please check out our new website at www.milkhoneybees.co.uk. I'm so excited we finally have a website. <laughs> um, I'm on Twitter at Ebonita underscore and, or at Juvenis, which helps. If you go through Juvenis, you'll find me. There's so many ways you can find me, but I will hopefully be finding a way to create somewhere where I put more ideas around young black girls um, because it is important. So I will be doing my research as well. So hopefully when that comes out, a lot more people will understand the conversation that I'm trying to have and the reason why I'm doing it. Uh, yeah, so I, I will have something soon where I will directly be talking specifically about young black girls and kind of championing their voices and linking it into my further research. So that's mm-hmm. in development at the moment. And I need to say thank you for having me. This is the first time I've actually spoken about young black girls so confidently on a platform. Um, I wonder why. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is he black? Is he black? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. Um, but this is the first time, and I'm I'm happy that this was like the starting conversation that has me also feeling confident that this is needed because sometimes in this space where you're not talking about what everybody else may be talking about, it feels lonely. So like really, really thank you women for, you know, being supportive as well as allowing me to come on here. Um, I do appreciate it a lot more than you even know. No, I think we've all learned a lot during this conversation. I know me personally, just having my own experience with grief and loss, I've learned so much and so much of what you said has resonated with how I have processed it as well. So it's like, yeah, it's a, there's a whole epiphany taking place as a result of this conversation. So thank you for coming on, dude. Thank you. I think the only thing I can leave you with is, and everybody listening and even myself, is never forget your young Black girl inside of you because she is the reason you are the person you are today. Mm. She is the reason that we are the Black, powerful, dope women that we are. And allow her to play. Sometimes she wants to run around. Do that. Don't feel ashamed of allowing your young black girl internally come out. And I, I really, really hope people like take onto that. I really want to see more of more women, you know, feeling comfortable to bring out their young black girl because, like I said, she is the reason why we shine today. 
I saw clapping in the background. So I'm like, yeah, I think I said something right. <laughs> Girl, you got me like tearing up over here. I'm like, oh, did it look me? I, I have been trying to hold it back. Like whether this is going to go on the podcast or not, I don't think you've got to understand that like, this means so much to me. Yeah. And I'm, you know, you, you've seen my work. You have First supported time. me. Yeah. You've supported me through everything. But I tell you this, if not for the likes of Olivia, I would not be coming on these platforms to talk about black girlhood because I'm still healing from mine, you know? I left home when I was 15. When I was 15, I'm 27 now. And like I said, without the women that raised me, I would not be who I am today, whether it be my mom, whether it be the social worker that had to chase me around Brixton, whether it be, yeah, she was black, whether it be, you know, whether it be, you know, my mentors now, whether it just be women in sport, women in education, black women that I'm seeing really excel. And one thing about it is when I talk to them, they're all coming from an unheard place. So I just, I commend this platform. I'm, I'm just filled with so much joy today. Aww. So thank you so much. Aww. I love that. So thanks so much for listening, guys. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get them from. On Twitter and Instagram, we are Dope Black Women 1. And on Facebook, we're just Dope Black Women. We'll be back with you next week. But until then, stay blessed and unapologetically Black. All the way Black. Blackly Black. Black tested Black. Can we just deep that I really put the, the spaces in between my name? <laughs> oh, yeah, she emailed me, like, make sure you get my name right. E, B, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> um.